John 19, 17 through 30. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is uh, super great to be with you guys and in your presence, and it's a very sacred thing to be able to talk about this passage, this text, to speak specifically about the death and crucifixion of Jesus. I don't know, I don't know if there's anything more awesome to get to do, or just the greater weight of responsibility that I think I carry anytime I get to preach or teach the Word of God. Um, but uh, my name is Seth, I'm from Corvallis, uh, and I'm from Grace City in Corvallis, your sister church uh, down there. And uh, it's good always to see some of the OG Corvallis folk that are in the room and see some of you that are jumping on board with this amazing little thing you got going up here. Um, before I, I dive in any further, I just wanna give just a massive shout out to Pastor Simon. Every time I'm with Simon, uh, our friendship is just revived and, and renewed, and I remember just what a great friend I have with him. And I also remember why I was so excited to send him out to plant this church. And it's because I can't think of anyone that I care about in my life that I wouldn't want Simon to shepherd or pastor or disciple. He's just an incredible man of God, and I'm really thankful for the work that he and Shirley, his family, have uh, done here, all the leaders that have moved and sacrificed, and all you guys are contributed to be a part of this community. And I really believe there's something great that God has for this community as well. Um, it's also not lost to me, uh, the time, the moment that we're in right now, I'm in 2022, fall of 2022, it feels a bit like a turning of a page. It feels as if uh, there's been um, quite an uproar over the last couple of years, quite a tumult, um, but that there's something fresh, there's something new that seems to be afoot. 
And uh, I'm not alone in those that are really believing and standing in faith that God is going to do something very special in this time and in this moment. And one of the things that we have been talking about quite extensively down in Corvallis and believe this is true uh, for our Grace City uh, family uh, more broadly uh, is that we really believe that God desires to have a fresh encounter with his people. That sometimes one of the, like of, of all the amazing things that God can do in the world, the great works that God can do in the world, bringing uh, just revival and renewal and restoration and cultural renewal and all the rest. Um, but at the, at the core of it, sometimes at the genesis of it is just this fresh touch of God's presence to his people. I don't know if there's anything more um, special and treasured that we have than that to really be in God's presence, to encounter God's presence, to gather here together in this amazing space, in this amazing city, and to not just sing songs about Jesus, but to actually be with Jesus among his people. That is the thing. In fact, prior to Jesus' death and then after his resurrection, he spent a moment with his disciples in the same room, known as the upper room, and it was in this space that Jesus' unique presence with his people ministered to them and prepared them for the eventual like death and suffering he was about to go through and also prepared them for the sending out into the world to proclaim the good news that he was alive. And the capstone moments that really marked and shaped and, and grounded his people to prepare them for massive amounts of suffering and confusion and just all kinds of chaotic world events were his presence, like this was it. This is, this is the treasure that we have, being with God in his presence. Of all the things that God has done for us, it's his presence with us that is the most prized. And there's something beautiful that happens among God's people when we cease to ask God for things and we simply begin to desire God for God. Not that we don't need a lot of things, and not that God isn't the provider of a lot of things, and not that God doesn't delight to give all things. But there's something different about believing God for a thing and just being with him. Because he's the thing. Because he's totally the thing. And when you begin to taste that and know that, then you begin to know a little bit about what I'm talking about. And what I want to do uh, this morning is unpack this moment of Jesus' death. And I want to unpack why it is this beautiful moment that provides for us the opportunity to be with Jesus, to remain with Jesus, and encounter his presence in a meaningful and ongoing way. Now, there is no shortage of um, experiences and opinions that have come about the cross of Jesus and his death. Uh, he was a historic man, uh, not a lot of meaningful debate about that, and there, that his death that it was recorded both inside and outside of biblical history is sure, um, but the instrument of his death and the nature of his death and the meaning of his death, all of that, all of that is, is a quite red hot debate throughout the historical ages. What exactly did Jesus's death mean? Was he just a, a political outlier that had to be silenced? Was he just a, a, a religious ideologue that, uh, that was, was a threat to the existing system? Um, was he just a random like itinerant teacher and preacher that uh, just hit some, some bad luck and got start running with the wrong crowds? Or, as the scriptures claim, was Jesus of Nazareth, God in human flesh, that actually came to be the sacrifice for human sin? And this death of Jesus, the reason, one of the reasons why it has been so controversial throughout the ages, why it's so difficult for people to process, is not just that he died, but it's why he died. And taking into consideration that this, this, this humble carpenter 
that claimed to be like Yahweh in human flesh, that he was actually, came into our world, which is incredible as it is, but that he wouldn't just reign and rule and demonstrate his glory and like operate in power and claim all authority into himself, that he wouldn't just dominate and crush his enemies, that he just wouldn't crush underfoot like everyone that would oppose him. If God were to show up on earth, why wouldn't he just demonstrate himself to be the all-power, omnipotent sort of being that he actually is? And if Jesus is truly God, why would he die? How could it be that God would die? All these introduce theological categories and even to some extent moral convulsions that leave people with their spiritual heads spinning. And even you might be one that could find yourself within that category. And even if you're a Christian, this might even just be a difficult thing to stir the waters of here this morning. Why is it that God would come to the earth not to conquer all of his enemies, but actually to be conquered by his enemies? And what exactly did this accomplish? Well, one of the things that the early Christians started to do was to proclaim the death of Jesus and obviously his resurrection in its wake. Um, And there's a few moments where you get clarity about exactly the kind of message that they brought, how they distilled the meaning of Jesus' death down and what they really pulled out of it. Now, you could preach a thousand, if not a million different sermons on the death of Jesus because there's so much rich material that you could draw from and so many things that you could say. But when you look into the heart of the early church, there's a consistent theme they speak of as with first importance. 1 Corinthians 15 is a classic example of this, starting in verse one. It says, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, one of the earliest Christian communities, saying, I want to make sure that you possess the gospel or the good news about Jesus. And as he goes into the good news about Jesus, the central message about who he was and what he did, he says, as with first importance, that Christ died for our sins. It's not that Christ died as a godly example for us to show what faithfulness to God looks like. It's not that Christ died in order that the resources of heaven would be unleashed to you in terms of health, wealth, and healing and whatnot. It's that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and three days later was risen from the dead, according to the scriptures, and then was seen by witnesses all over the place. That Christ died for our sins. Now, it is not lost on me in Corvallis, nor in a place here like Portland, how um, out of sync a message like that is. Now, for some of you who've been around church for a very long time, you might think to yourself, well, what's weird about that? And then you go outside the church walls and talk to normal people, and then you're like, yes, that starts to seem very, very odd that Christ died for our sins. That this man in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago claiming to be God actually died a death that he said was not his own but was actually done on behalf of us for our sins. And this was of first importance that of all the things Jesus could have come and done or said or been about that actually paying a penalty for our sins was of first importance. First importance. And I... I have these moments, particularly when I'm just ingrained into the world around me where I just wonder, is this really of first importance? I don't know if I always feel like this is of first importance. Uh, I get maybe in somewhere in God's hierarchy that can be on the list, but I've got other things. 
I got war is up there, can we solve that problem? Poverty can also be up there, can we work on that a little bit? Uh, there's also this all, like internal existential angst I carry everywhere, can we do something about that? Like I've got, there's other things I would put on the place of first importance. I have members of my community going through serious health trials, some of the last days of their life, and I think there are other things I would place in the position of first importance. And yet the death of Jesus, the meaning of his death, and what the early church took away from it, and what they've passed on through the generations, is that Christ died for our sins. And this, this isn't where the meaning of his death ends, but this is where it begins. He died for our sins. One of my, uh, one of my all-time favorite Jesus moments is in Mark chapter two. In Mark chapter two, he's teaching uh, in Peter's mother-in-law's house, and it's a small little inner courtyard of the house when all of a sudden, uh, the roof, which would have been kind of like a, uh, covered with palm branches and so forth, not like a hard kind of surface roof, starts opening, and there's four dudes up on the roof that are lowering like a dude on a mat down who's paralyzed in the front of Jesus and totally interrupts his teaching. And uh, Jesus looking at this dude that's now being lowered down from the roof because the room was so crowded there was no other way to get to him, sees the man who's paralyzed and can't walk, and the first words out of his mouth were, your sins are forgiven. This, this is where you got it, like here's where your appreciation of Jesus hopefully goes up at least one and a half percent in the next few moments. Because you think to yourself, is Jesus dumb? <laughs> is he totally obtuse? Does he lack any awareness of like the moment? Because when a paralyzed dude gets lowered down in front of you, what do you assume he's looking for? Legs to work, healing. And Jesus looks at this guy. The Bible says that he saw the faith of the men that were, lowers, that were lowering him down. He saw the faith in this moment, and Jesus loves faith. If you know anything about Jesus, when he's around faith, oh, it fires him up. He sees the faith, and he looks at the guy, and he gives him his best shot. Your sins are forgiven. To which everyone, I'm sure, was like, got anything else? You know what I mean? Like, okay, any, like what's behind door number two? Like, what, 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 what else do you have for us, Jesus? And in that moment, there was a crowd around and there were some kind of religious sort of types that were around and they listened to Jesus pronounce this man's forgiveness and they started thinking within their own hearts, wait, who does this guy think he is? God alone can forgive sins. This guy is acting as if he's God, speaking on behalf of God, the prerogative of God, and feeling like as if he has the authority of God to forgive sins. Who does he think he is? And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in his hearts, in Mark 2, it says Jesus addressed him. He says, why are you thinking this way? I'm not an idiot, I know why he's here, but I did it on purpose. And if there's nothing else you know about Jesus, everything he does is on purpose. <clears throat> and he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat and walk? Hmm. Which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? Well, when you think about it for a moment, you realize it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Simon, your sins are forgiven. Surely, your sins are forgiven. Everybody, let's have an Oprah moment. Your sins are all forgiven. That's easy to say because there's no objective external evidence that anything I said is true. How do you know you're forgiven? I said it, but how do you know it's real? I don't know. I guess you just have to trust it, but that's all you get. 
Maybe you feel forgiven, maybe you don't feel forgiven, but can I please tell you, feeling forgiven is not the thing that matters. Being forgiven is the thing that matters. You can't go to jail on a 10-year sentence, spend about a year of it in there, and feel like, you know what, I feel like I'm forgiven now, (laughs) like, I'm just gonna walk out. It doesn't matter how you feel. And likewise, if you serve your sentence, you can't just say like, you know what, I'm not sure that I feel forgiven yet, I'm not really sure if I can walk. Being forgiven matters. But here's the problem. How do you know that Jesus' words, that when he speaks them, whatever he speaks comes true? How do you know there's legitimacy that when he says you're forgiven, you are? But so that you would know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, pick up your mat and walk home. Easier to say your sins are forgiven, harder to say take up your mat and walk because, well, the proof is in the pudding there now, isn't it? I could say that, I could say that to a paralyzed guy, but if he doesn't get up and walk, it's been exposed and my words are empty and without authority. There's no power in them. But here's the beauty of Jesus, that you'll see trace throughout his life, he's gonna utilize a need in someone's life to expose the deepest need in their life. He cares about both, but when God sees a deeper need in you, he doesn't settle for anything more superficial than it. And this guy comes in looking for his legs to be healed, and Jesus knows his deeper need is for his sin to be forgiven. But so that they would know that when he speaks forgiveness, it's real, he heals his legs. And when the man walks out of the room, It's not just this, oh my goodness, I can walk now, praise Jesus, thank you God, go on about my life. It's that he knows that the words Jesus spoke about the forgiveness of his sins are authentic. He's forgiven. I I don't know, I don't know if this Jesus is compatible with Portland. I know plenty of people that are down for a healer. I know many, many people that would be down even for a teacher. But for someone that would insist that sin is our biggest problem and the forgiveness of sin is our greatest need, that's a whole different story. In fact, I think that when I, when I talk to, minister to, like when I build relationship with neighbors and so forth, it has seemed to me throughout my life that there are about three different, and there could be more, but there are at least three different categories of people when it comes to this idea of sin and the forgiveness of sin. One is that there's people that believe they don't need it. Two, people that believe they don't want it. And three, people that believe they don't deserve it. Don't need it, don't want it, don't deserve it. Now, it seems in previous generations when I speak to um, people who have walked with Jesus longer than me, like my parents and grandparents, shorter generation people, it seems as if the bulk of ministry seemed to be centered around the third, those that don't deserve it. And that the good news of the gospel was that no matter what you've done or who you've been, that Jesus can indeed forgive you. Radically good news to comfort those that are under the weight of shame and condemnation and the liberty and the freedom that that has brought to past moments or cultures or generations has been enormous, can't can't overstate it. 
I don't know that's where we're at anymore. I don't meet very many people that feel like they don't deserve forgiveness. I meet way more people that feel like they don't even need it in the first place. Are you telling me that God is offended by me? What did I ever do to him? And if he doesn't accept me as I am on my terms, well, then I don't know that I even want him. That seems to be more the case. Or people that acknowledge, no, I do carry around a sense of guilt or shame in my life, things that I've done that I'm not proud of. But do I need forgiveness from Jesus or God? No. Myself? Probably. And these seem to be the things that I think people carry around more and more. Now, some of this I feel like can ebb and flow quite a bit with cultural trends and changes. And if you have paid attention to what has been happening, even within the last five to 10 years, it's become quite prominent that culture has been shifting and adapting. In my parents' generation and those uh, that preceded it, there was a belief that the human being was primarily a thinking, rational, cognitive self. This stems from the enlightenment, this goes way back, this is cogito ergo sum, this is I think, therefore I am. This is human beings are essentially a brain on a stick. It says that like, as I think, therefore I am. It says that knowledge is power. And the idea of growth or even spiritual growth that got attached to Christianity was that as if I am learning more ideas, if I, my mind is growing and being transformed and renewed, if I am being educated, if I'm doing Bible study, this is what spiritual growth means because ultimately when you reduce the human being down, you can reduce me down to my core essence as a thinking, cognitive, rational being. And so some of you even would like identify with this in some of your like spiritual backgrounds. If, they, if you say, what is spiritual growth or what is our spiritual problem? We might say, well, to some degree it's ignorance and that's solved through education. And so the education becomes primary. It becomes the thing you have to do to grow. And so Bible study, digging deeper into the word, like memorizing scripture, like all these things become the, become the very center focus of everything because it's based around the idea that I am a brain on a stick and as long as my brain is fed the right ideas, I will grow. Now, this has shifted. This has shifted. And there's noted uh, sociologists, uh, Philip Reef and Charles Taylor, that have noted this and they've noted that we've entered into an era of what they coin as the therapeutic self, which as they say is an emotional self instead of just a cognitive self. So instead of I think, therefore I am, it becomes I feel, therefore I am. And so rather than just a brain on the stick, we become like a heart in a box. And this can actually be backed by to some degree of biology and neuroscience that shows that human beings are very, very emotional beings and that we tend to rationalize what it is we actually feel. And so this idea comes along that the deepest and truest and most authentic part of me is my feelings and my experience of this world according to my feelings. And so therefore, if someone were to ever hurt my feelings, they're not just hurting something on the surface of me, they're actually violating the deepest part of me. It's actually a violence that has to be taken into account. And so in this sort of a worldview, I'm not just, I'm not just a thinking thing, I'm a feeling thing, and therefore all of my emotions are wrapped up into my identity. I am who I feel I am, and that feeling is the very essence of most importance to me. Now, in the feeling world, spiritual growth comes with the idea that I've got to combat every bad feeling that I have, including my anxiety, including my depression, or whatever negative feeling that is, and my salvation is going to look like utter happiness and self-love. 
Now, any time I've ever shared that with a room with anyone like 29 years old or younger, it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, aren't there Bible verses about this? Like, isn't that, isn't that the thing? Aren't there Bible verses that this is, this is what, this is the thing that God wants for us? And the truth of the matter is, the idea of who we are as human beings cannot be contained within the idea of the cognitive self from a traditional view or the emotional self from a more modern view. The traditional and the modern, the cognitive and the emotional are actually just two elements of what the Bible says our true self is, which is a relational self. And how we think and how we feel are deeply and mysteriously woven into the fabric of the way that we are related to God and others in the world. Meaning, to build relationships with people, I need to know people better. But just knowing facts about people, does that build relationships with them? My wife has blue eyes. She was a towhead when she was born, and now her hair is much more brown. Uh, she stands about, you know, five foot six tall. She says she's five six. She's really five five. You know? <laughs> Do you know my wife? No, you don't. No, you don't. My wife and I, last night, before we went to bed, um, I said two words to my wife and then gave her a look which reminded her of a moment that we shared one month ago which was a echo upon something that happened at our honeymoon and we just died laughing together. You don't need to know the details because you wouldn't get it anyway. Because I know my wife. And it's not just the sum total of things I've learned about her. But in the same way, it's not just about shared emotional experiences either. It's not just about how I feel about her. Because sometimes I don't feel great about her. Let me put it more accurately. Sometimes she doesn't feel great about me. And the feelings we share tend to come and go but the relationship that we have is far more real and concrete than how we're ever feeling. And so it is with God. That when Jesus looks at our life, he doesn't diagnose our problem as ignorance and stupidity or depression and unhappiness. He says your problem is sin. Why? Because sin is whatever breaks relationship with God or others. Isaiah 59 says that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. His ear is not so dull that he can't hear, but it's your sin that has separated you from him. Now, what's shocking about Isaiah 59, as well as a good chunk of the Old Testament, is that when it makes a statement like that, God is speaking that to a people that have been violently removed from their country into exile. So they have a big problem, it's called Babylon. They're violent and horrible and terrible. They've ripped you from your homeland, tried to strip you of your culture, and everything in you is trying to be faithful to go back home and to live the life you know God has called you to live. And so if you were to come to God, you would say, I've got a problem right now. And God says, oh, yes, you do. My problem is Babylon. He said, oh, no, they're not. They're a problem. They are not the problem. Because where you're located in the world or what is even happening to you is not the thing that separates you from God nor brings you closer to him. My friends, there's no amount of pain you have ever gone through, no trauma you've ever experienced, 
Nothing, nothing in all the world, no amount of pain that can ever separate you from the love of God. But sin will. So what is Jesus supposed to come and solve? Our pain matters to him. In fact, you will never even get to one drop in the ocean of God's compassion for all your pain. And watch him throughout his life compassionately heal and save the most practical of human needs, including this paralyzed man, who he did indeed heal, time and time again. And yet, his death was not primarily about meeting any other need, but the most primary and important need of forgiveness of sin. Why? Because human beings are relational beings and sin is what separates us from God and it's Jesus paying our debt of sin that has enabled us to be reconciled to God and in reconciliation with God, there is life and joy and pleasure and healing and restoration forevermore. There's coming a day when all of your idiocy is going to be healed. Your ignorance, your fog, your confusion, your distortion of what's true and what's lies, all of that is gonna be just blown away and you're gonna stand in the reality of truth and light and your mind will expand and grow and learn into eternity in ways you can't fathom. All the nerds in the room, rejoice. (laughs) And there's coming a day when you will realize you've barely sampled the appetizer of joy that will one day be a permanent reality. That will never get old, only get better. But those are just the outcomes of being brought near to your creator. And there's one thing that separates you from him. You can follow Jesus even if the man remained paralyzed. You can follow Jesus if you're depressed. You can be near to God and dumb as a rock. In 20 years of ministry, I can tell you this is true. (laughs) You can be near to Jesus and deeply anxious. It's true. And I'm not unsympathetic. I'm not unsympathetic. I grew up in a very challenging home. By the age of 12, I was diagnosed as pre-ulcerous. I know anxiety. I know it well. But if I were to be lowered down from that roof and come before Jesus and say, I'm anxious. That's not what an anxious person would do, by the way. There's no jazz hands much with anxiety, but Jesus, I'm anxious. You know, whatever it is, right? He might look at me and say, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. I'm not sure that's what I was, uh, I don't know if that feels great to me. (laughs) "Hmm." You think that's your need and I see it and I wanna heal it and touch it and one day I will and to some degree now, he might. But our greatest need is always to be with him. That's why when Jesus was born, he was called Emmanuel. God with us. It's how the story of the Bible began, it's how the story of the Bible ends, and it's all hinged in this middle moment on the cross where Jesus provides a way for us to be with him. And in his presence, in his presence, is everything we actually need. My happiness and God's will are not at odds. My healing 
and God's will are not at odds. My prosperity and God's will are not at odds. My intelligence and God's will are not at odds. But they are not the highest priorities of heaven, even though they might be mine. And praise God, Jesus doesn't anxiously bow down to my priorities. Praise God when someone walks into the ER, you know what I mean? Saying, I've got the sniffles, when they're bleeding out from a gunshot. They don't just hand them a Kleenex, you know what I mean? Praise God, Jesus looks at me. He says, Seth, your sins are forgiven. And we'll walk through everything else. The power you need, I've got. The love you need, I've got. The unconditional reality of joy that's existed before anything began, you have full access to. But my friends, if you hear nothing else, there is one thing that keeps you from this presence, and it's sin. And in our therapeutic world, and I say that with the uttermost humility, I'm getting a literal doctoral degree on the fusion of psychology and theology, and I have studied intensely anxiety and its effects on human beings and our relationships. I get it, it's a real, devastatingly horrible thing to walk through. But what I know is this, is that my salvation is not conditioned upon my mental or emotional health. My salvation is conditioned upon the grace of Jesus to forgive my sin, to bring me near to him, and I can walk with him in this broken moment of a world. And one day with the promise that all of this junk will be untrue. But my issue is my sin. Your pain will never separate you from him, but your pride will. Your pride will. Your attempts to control others rather than love them will. Your attempts to self-manage, to self-soothe, to self-medicate, that will. And if we take sin as seriously as Jesus takes it, then we can have everything that Jesus actually offers to us and says we can have. Oh, we need it. Some might say, well, I don't want it. But here's the problem. If you think that you're the only one that needs to forgive you, the Bible demonstrates there was a way in which Jesus forgave you and it was by paying the penalty of your sins, dying the death that you should have died on your behalf. The language of I just need to forgive myself, which in some moments has sounded very, very therapeutically cathartic to me. But what I'm actually saying is, I need to pay the penalty of my own sin to release me in freedom from the guilt of my own sin. There's a reason why we can live in a delusion like like this, or say an illusion of just freedom of guilt and shame by trying to ignore or believe we have some sort of power to forgive, but there's something far different when someone's blood is bled on your behalf and then they pronounce forgiveness. You may not want it, but there's something deeper, there's something deeper at stake. Do you want Jesus? You can find greater happiness with yourself, you can find deeper self-love and acceptance, those are all fine things, I'm not against them. But if you want Jesus, you're gonna have to want it. And there's those that say they don't deserve it. I don't meet as many anymore, but occasionally, occasionally I do. I was just meeting with a, a guy who's um, 
military veteran. Did several tours in Iraq, and he's seen some things. He's done some things. He's now got severe PTSD because of them, living on disability, and it's been tough. He's been coming to church lately, and uh, he's getting dragged to church by a Buddhist atheist that just got radically saved by Jesus on Easter. So I was <laughs> like, that's okay, God. Well done, <laughs> that's a story and a half. Uh, and he comes to church and this guy looks, he looks the part. He looks the part. And he says, Pastor Seth, I've done things. I'm too scared to even tell you because I'm pretty sure you wouldn't want anything to do with me. I really don't know if there's a way for God to forgive me. Fair enough. I got really, uh, I got really moved not that long ago thinking about Jesus' death on the cross and the two thieves on either side. And there's a famous sermon by Alistair Begg he talks about these are two other thieves and one of them that asked to be with Jesus and Jesus says, okay, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so he starts to like think through exactly how that looked like when that thief died and then he went straight to heaven. And he shows up at heaven's gates, you know, he kind of just dramatizes this moment where he has to stand in front of the angel and the angel asks him like, okay, why are you here? And the guy's like, well, to be honest, I'm not totally sure. It's like, well, what qualifications do you have to be here? It's like, I, I can't answer that either. It's like, well, nuts, okay? So he has to bring in like a supervisor angel, you know what I mean? Like this is a real quandary, you know? Uh, you know? And it says, okay, sir, like, can you please explain to me justification by faith? He's like, uh, sorry, never, never heard of that. Can you please explain to me like the propitiatory elements of the blood of Christ? It's, I, I don't, sorry, you're speaking over my head here. I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. Can you explain to me the historical doctrine of the, like the, the inerrancy of scriptures and their authority for the life of the believer? Like, dude, you've, you lost me. I'm gone. I don't know. I don't know. To which the exasperated angel might ask, what makes you think you can come in? The guy in the middle cross said I could come. If you use any language at that moment in the first person, you lose. Because I believed, because I served, because I thought, because I felt, because I did my best, because I tried. The only answer you have to give is in the third person, because he, because Jesus died for me, because Jesus died for my sins, because Jesus paid my debt, because Jesus was on the cross that I deserve to be on, and Jesus made a way for me to come in. Once you've got to the breaking point of your understanding of God's grace is usually meaning you've just arrived at the beginning. Just the beginning. And those that believe they truly don't deserve to be ironically are guilty of a level of pride thinking that they're so special and their sins so unique that even the blood of Christ isn't valuable enough to pay for it. Take that. But when you see Jesus in all his beauty, dying in utter ugliness for you, 
you realize the conversation of who deserves it and who doesn't is out the window. I need it. Oh God, I want it. And I will never deserve it, but that was never the point. Never the point. The love of God doesn't look across the world to figure out who's deserving and who isn't. The love of God doesn't look into your soul into the darker places and the motivations of your life and the pride of thinking you know better for you than you know the one that made you. He doesn't look into the darkest recesses of who we are and all of our brokenness and perversion and twistedness engage the deserving level of whether or not he wants to be with us. He plummets right into our world, takes on human flesh. For God so loved the world that he would give his only son. Whoever just trusts him would be with him forever. I preach to you that is, which that is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. Whatever else you have going on in your life, my friends, I am sympathetic to. So many things I want God to heal. So many things I want God to heal. So many people that need so many things that lack in so many ways in my world. I ache for them. And yet the thing we need most deeply is intimacy with God. And there's one thing that keeps us from that. Sin. And you can debate the categories of sin that you agree with or don't agree with, but even that debate is the greatest sin of all. Jesus died a bloody death for our sin, not to guilt us, but to reveal to us how deeply and passionately committed he is to loving us. End of story. Father in heaven, I'm asking that this morning, this morning, all the other excuses that we're making, all the other things that we are elevating in our lives, believing to be the problems, got any ways that we feel like we are just victims. Helpless and underserved. Jesus, would you please shine your light on any sin in our life that we might freely confess and receive forgiveness? Father, anyone in this room that needs it for the first time, that has never just received the forgiveness of Jesus, Pray that this morning would be that moment. If that's you, all you have to say is, Jesus, I confess all my sin to you. All that you call sin, I acknowledge as sin, and I give it all to you. If you're here in this room and you've prayed that prayer a thousand times, let's go for a thousand and one. Let's just renew the joy of our salvation this morning that whatever else is going on in our life and whatever other burden we're carrying, that the greatest gift of all is God with us. And we have that because our sins are paid for. The debt is fully paid. 
not partially paid, fully paid. Past, present, future, all paid. Oh God, would you let joy bubble up in our soul? Would you let gratitude bubble up in our soul? Father, would you let this good news of Christ's death remind us again of how much we are loved and everything we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord.